We're in uh, part two of our sermon series called Start Here. We're talking about the fundamentals of the Christian faith. If you have your study guides and you want to use those, take them out now and get a pen or something. And hopefully those are handy. Um, and uh, you've also, some of you have gotten your Start Here books. You don't need those for today's sermon, but they might be helpful uh, reading for you at home. Who is Jesus is the question today. And we're talking about this, I hope, in a very pragmatic way. If you're a skeptic, if you're an agnostic, I hope that this message will hit home for you and not just if, you know, you're sold out for Jesus already. So, who is Jesus and why does his life matter? Uh, Larry King, many of you know, is a famous uh, talk show host. Uh, he is also an outspoken atheist. Several years ago, somebody asked him, of all the historical figures <clears throat> who have made history, who would you most like to interview? And what question would you most like to ask? And Larry King said unequivocally, Jesus Christ, I'd like to interview Jesus, and I'd like to ask him whether he was indeed virgin-born. He said the whole of history turns on that one issue for him. Uh, it would, it would um, define history to know the truth about that one fact. And I think in general, uh, Larry King has it right. Um, I think because everyone seems to agree uh, that Jesus is the most influential figure in history, that no one has shaped human history as much as Jesus Christ has, given the fact that this poor, you know, uh, rabbi from the middle of nowhere became the most important person by whose life by which we gauge time, like time stopped and started again for us when Jesus was born. So if you can prove that he's a fraud, if you can somehow ask him and prove that he's not who the Bible really said he was, then everything would change. That's what Larry King's saying. All the stuff we thought we knew was wrong, and everything changes for the way society works if Jesus was not who he said he was. You see what's at stake here? On the other hand, if you can prove that the most influential, most powerful person in the history of humankind was exactly who he said he was, <clears throat> and told the truth about who he said he was, then that also would change the course of the future because it would uh, mean for believers and non-believers alike that uh, Jesus was absolutely God incarnate. And so Larry King's absolutely right. Jesus was, at, was either uh, a total fraud or he is the absolute truth. And I usually like to leave room for gray area for people who are wondering about these things, and I wish I could leave some gray area today, but the facts just don't allow that. In this particular case, it really is one or the other. Either Jesus really is a fraud or he really is the truth. And the good news is that we get to choose. We get to weigh the options and make a logical, kind of rational choice about who we believe Jesus to be. Uh, and it's a really important question given Jesus' influence on history. And I think it's one or it's the other and there's no uh, in between. So who is Jesus of Nazareth? Now, if you come at this from a skeptical vantage point and you are an agnostic type of person and you're, maybe you call yourself a Christian because you like Jesus, but you really don't believe in, you know, the religious stuff or the supernatural stuff, you just kind of like his teachings, right? I'm guessing I'm describing some people in the room today. I've been there. So if that's where you come from, you probably are skeptical of uh, examining the life of Jesus just through the lens of Scripture because the guys who wrote the Scriptures had agendas. They're biased. The Bible is a biased document. Even I own that fact. So if you're an agnostic about this, where do you go to learn about 
who Jesus was or if Jesus was. There's been a question in modern times about whether Jesus even really existed at all. Thankfully, there are early, early sources that are not biblical sources, that are not Christian sources, that identify some key facts about Jesus' life. There is the first century Roman historian Tacitus, who hated Christians, who called Christians atheists because they wouldn't bow before emperor, the emperor uh, Caesar. And, uh, and so he called Christians atheists in his writings <clears throat> and just despised what Christians stood for. But Tacitus at least uh, confessed and admitted that Jesus of Nazareth was a real man. He really existed. He was from Nazareth and he was crucified by the Romans, arrested and crucified sometime in the 30s AD. There's another first century historian named Josephus who was a Jewish historian who didn't hate the Christians, but he just kind of pitied them. He kind of looked down at them. Uh, he said they were uh, a little bit backward uh, in the way that they do things. And so uh, Josephus also vouched for the existence of Jesus. Perhaps more compelling to some of you smart, educated agnostics is a modern-day agnostic like Bart Ehrman, uh, who is a religious religion professor, a PhD, who wrote a book called Did Jesus Exist? And I'll save you the time of having to go and read it yourself. I'll give you the whole synopsis of his book. He says, and I quote, whatever else you may think about Jesus, he certainly did exist. And he examines all of the evidence as a skeptic, as an agnostic. And he said Jesus absolutely existed. And there are some basic things, as you see on the screen, that we know about him uh, and about uh, who he was. So beyond these facts, there's very little agreement among everybody else about who Jesus was. So yeah, he existed. Yeah, he was a Jewish rabbi. He drew a crowd with his, uh, you know, uh, rhetoric. But beyond that, you know, what else do we know? There seems to be a little bit of a split among Christians and non-Christians alike. Most people um, uh, struggle to really define who Jesus was. You know, who, what kind of a person are we dealing with here when we think about this guy? Was he like, was he like a Che Guevara kind of a figure? Was he like a political revolutionary? Like a, a, a sort of a community organizing kind of a social uprising kind of a guy who met his match in Jerusalem when he was arrested. Was he like that? Or was he like a prophet in the same vein as Muhammad and Moses? Or was Jesus like uh, the Dalai Lama? Was he just like sitting cross-legged saying cool things all day? Like who are we talking about here and what did he, what did he really represent? These are, these are the questions. The most common vein of thought that I'm hearing uh, in coffee houses today and on Reddit threads and things like that is that Jesus was a really great guy. Jesus was a really great teacher, a really great philosopher. There's nothing wrong with Jesus, but all of his followers are jerks. Jesus is awesome. Christians are jerks. You know, and of course, that's absolutely true. Like, let's just own it, right? Jesus is great. And every one of us who's tried to follow him have gotten it wrong, right? So we do and say things that Jesus would never do and say. We judge people and hate people that Jesus would never judge or hate. So yeah, of course, Jesus is awesome. Christians are not. But here's one of those illogical leaps people are making without even thinking about it anymore. Very smart, educated people make this illogical leap. Jesus is awesome. The people who follow Jesus are not awesome. Therefore, following Jesus is not awesome. You see the lack of logic in that train of thought. 
but that is, I think, where most agnostic people, where most skeptics land. We have a very high level of respect for Jesus, a very low level of respect for his church, and therefore his movement is uh, sort of delegitimized in our uh, culture. The numbers bear this out. If you ever study uh, like the census data and what people are thinking about religion and faith, like I study this stuff religiously. Ha, get it? Hey-o. And, uh, <laughs> and so I do look at the, I like to know where culture's headed. Um, and uh, so what's happening right now in the, la- the latest data is that 90% of Americans hold Jesus in the highest esteem. So uh, the only historical figure that is held in higher esteem than Jesus is Abraham Lincoln. Uh, he's held at, he's at 91%, which I don't quite get. Like, he let that war go on for a long time, you know. I think it was the top hat that just sets him over the top. If Jesus had a top hat, I feel like Jesus might be in the first place. Uh, but 90% of Americans hold Jesus in the highest esteem, have the utmost respect for Jesus. But... <clears throat> Only 68% of Americans today call themselves Christians. We have 90% that say Jesus is absolutely the coolest. 68% of Americans say we're Christians. Only 40% of Americans say we regularly worship Jesus with other believers. And the worst part of that, 40%, is that half of them are lying because in truth only 20% of Americans regularly worship Jesus with other Christians. So... It's another example of Christian hypocrisy. Half of us that say we love him kind of don't all the time. You know, like we're, we're liars, half of us. Uh, and so it's, it's, a, it's, a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a conundrum. These numbers, they don't add up. How can you say, I hold Jesus in the utmost respect, utmost esteem, 90% of us, but most of us don't do the one thing he asked us to do most often, which is to follow him. So there's a disconnect in our culture right now. And I think it comes back to this idea that um, we want more than ever, people today want to embrace Jesus the man while denying Jesus as divine. We want to appreciate Jesus' philosophy while rejecting his divinity. Because his philosophy is easy to talk about. We all love the do unto others stuff. We love the love your enemy stuff. We love the prodigal son and the good Samaritan. All that stuff we love. But all the other stuff, the magic stuff, you know, the resurrection stuff, the virgin birth stuff. Can we just not talk about that? Because I like this part of Jesus, but I don't like that part of Jesus. I think more and more this is where people are landing with Jesus. I think that's why the numbers don't add up the way they should. And I, I just want to say that there's a, there's a problem with that line of thinking. You can't really have it both ways. You can't so easily distinguish Jesus' philosophy from his divinity. You can't separate his teachings from his resurrection. Why? Because both things come from the same source. The same sources give us both sides of this man's life. And so you can't say on the one hand these sources are absolutely credible because they gave us this awesome stuff we love. And on the other hand, these sources are absolutely biased and we can't believe this stuff at all. Because the same New Testament writers, most of whom knew Jesus personally and the rest of whom were his contemporaries and knew the people who loved Jesus and followed him for three years, the same people give us this information. 
So it's all throughout the New Testament, not just in one or two places. The same people that give us his teachings, all the stuff we love, give us his resurrection and all the stuff we struggle with. And so it's either credible or it's not. They are, they are either uh, uh, believable or you have to throw them out completely um, because uh, it comes from the same place. So uh, here we go. Uh, this is from the Gospel of Mark. People say that the divine claims from Jesus are all in the Gospel of John. They like to say that. They told us that in seminary because John was written last and they say that that stuff came about later. That the divine claims about Jesus were a later kind of a concoction brought up, you know, later in the movement. But here we had the first gospel that was written. Mark was the first one written. And this is what Jesus says in the gospel of Mark. Here we go. Again, the high priest asked Jesus, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Does this sound like the words of a wise philosopher or just a good teacher? Or a really good guy. And then we have one of the earliest letters of Paul. Paul actually wrote his letters before the Gospels were written. And this is what Paul said about Jesus in Colossians. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. Read this line with me, please. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Let's read it again. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have come to fullness in him. These are the words of Paul, who clearly of the persuasion that Jesus was more than just a really good guy. What I want to say to you is that you can take the writings of the New Testament and believe them, or you can, you can take the writings of the New Testament and throw them in your fireplace. But can we just please be done with this idea that Jesus is just a really good teacher, that Jesus is just a really good guy who's there for you when you need him? Can we just dispel with any notion that Jesus uh, you know, was somewhere in the middle of the road? Uh, I, I, uh, I have to give you an obligatory C.S. Lewis quote in order to keep my pastor card today. Is that okay? Can I give you another C.S. Lewis quote? We're going to do that quite a lot. Uh, uh, here, we, here we go. Do we have the C.S. Lewis quote? A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg. Or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. So the question of who is Jesus is really a multiple choice question. And we have a choice to make. A, Jesus is who he said he was, uniquely God incarnate, God in the flesh, the Messiah, the Son of God, who sits at the right hand of the Father and will come again in glory and invites you into a relationship today with God through him. Or B, Jesus is a compulsive liar with delusions of grandeur in the same vein as David Koresh or Jim Jones. Or C, Jesus is a talented man 
at the center of history's greatest conspiracy. Now, when I press my agnostic friends uh, for answers about who they're really saying Jesus is, when they say, I like this stuff of Jesus, but not that stuff, what they're really saying is that they believe C to be true. They believe that Jesus was a great man and his followers just got carried away. That after Jesus was gone, they so desperately wanted the movement to continue that they just made stuff up. They either stole the body and kept the secret, and Jesus' body is hidden somewhere under the Vatican, you know, or something, according to Dan Brown probably. Uh, or, or, you know, somebody else stole the body and they just went with it. Or, you know, they just started spreading the lies, with or without a body. They just said, you know, uh, this guy came back from the dead, and he's a really great guy, and you should believe in him. And because they were such persuasive academics and rhetoricians, you know, everybody just happened to believe what they were saying. Never mind the fact that they were all illiterate. Never mind the fact that they were all uneducated. Never mind the fact that they couldn't string two sentences together when they were following Jesus around, and he was frustrated to no end with their lack of, you know, thinking, never, never mind that they were Jews who hated Gentiles, and never mind the fact that many of the first Christians that were converted to Christianity were Gentiles who had before hated the Jews, never mind the fact that a few days before all this, a third of them were turning tricks on the streets, never mind the fact that it's the most unlikely scenario you could ever contrive of, never mind the fact that they were all teenagers Teenagers? Does anybody here really believe that teenagers could be so conniving and cunning as to... Uh, let's, okay, don't answer that last question. All right, because I'm afraid you're going to become an atheist. Uh, so, in all seriousness, these are the questions you have to consider. If you're going to choose B or C, you have to explain that to me. Like, uh, when it comes to the most important figure in human history, we, we all get to make the choice, but we have to explain where we... Why and, and how we come to that choice. You know, how did Peter and 10 teenagers become 10,000 Christians after the resurrection of Jesus? How did 10,000 men, women, and children become a million Christians by the end of the first century? Was this just coincidental? Was this the product of a hoax put on by fishermen, construction workers, day laborers, and prostitutes? Was this, was this some kind of a trick? The Bible says... It's because the original dudes that were following Jesus around never backed off their claims. And even in the face of the worst kinds of persecution, those 11 disciples stood strong. Ten of them were crucified, crucified upside down, some of them. Uh, they were beheaded. They were burned at the stake. The other one of them, John, was boiled in boiling hot oil and somehow survived in front of a crowd at the Colosseum. Hundreds of others were stoned to death in the streets, hundreds more... <clears throat> faced other kinds of persecution, uh, fed to lions in the Colosseum. And these are all uh, stories, by the way, that, that, are, uh, that, that are not just found in the Bible. Um, Josephus, among others, talks about the horrible things the first Christians went up against. And every time they faced death for the sake of Christ, they were given the choice to back off of their claims. And if it was a hoax, if it was a trick, you would think that some of them would be like, you know, guys, I, I am so sorry about this. Did you guys hear us saying that he was resurrected? Like, we were saying he was arrested. He had been arrested. <laughs> I'm going to go back to, to fishing now, if that's okay. You know, like, that's what you would expect if, if you're a C person, right, on, on the, the multiple choice 
Um, you, you know, so can this sort of thing be explained away? Absolutely, it can be explained away. The idea that someone would give their life for their religion is nothing new to the human experience. You could say, and I've heard people say this about the first Christians, they were, they were religious fanatics. Not unlike, you know, Islamic extremists that we see today, giving their lives away for what they believe in, hoping in some reward in the great hereafter. And you could, you could absolutely explain away the courage of the early Christians. But you have to press yourself beyond such simplistic notions. You have to press yourself to realize the early Christians were nothing like the Islamic extremists of today or any religious fanaticism we've witnessed in the world. The early Christians were not an ethnic group. They were not bound by their ethnicity or nationality. They had not been oppressed as a people by the same nation state for generations. A totally different situation. The first church was the most diverse group of people that the world had ever seen congregating together. The first church was made up of people of all different nationalities. There were different languages being spoken in the same churches. People of different colors and races, uh, different ethnic groups were coming together as one. Uh, this was nothing like what we see in most uh, cases of religious fanaticism. The early church was known not for its hatred of other people who were not like them, but for its love for people who were not like them. One thing that the Roman authorities hated most about Christianity as it grew was that the Christians insisted on feeding the Roman poor. And not just the Christian poor, but the non-Christian poor as well. There's one Roman emperor who's quoted as saying, I can't believe they're taking better care of our poor than our government is. They're the ones feeding our poor, loving our poor, and, and uh, they were known. They were known for their love, the first Christians were. We have evidence of Roman soldiers converting to Christianity by the end of the first century. And in the second century, we have evidence of churches being constructed on Roman military bases. You're going to have to come to terms with some kind of explanation for that if you're going to be a, a B or a C person here. How in the world does something like this move beyond a certain ethnic group and sweep like wildfire throughout the region in such a short time. You have to explain how Peter, 10 teenagers, and a handful of unemployed prostitutes became 2.4 billion people today. So we get back to that plausibility question that I asked you last week when we talked about God. What is more plausible here? What's more likely here? That Jesus was a total fraud or that he is the absolute truth? What's more likely that a bunch of illegitimate uh, sort of uh, followers of Jesus, a bunch of unemployed prostitutes, a bunch of, uh, a bunch of uh, illiterate fishermen pulled a fast one on us, and we've all been duped, and that's the reason that we're here? Or is it more likely that it's true? That all of it is true. Some will say, okay, I'll cede you that point. But it's still going too far to say that Jesus is any different than any other religious leader. And you can't, in these times, make a claim that Jesus was somehow unique. You can't say that kind of stuff anymore. That Jesus was exclusive. Because everybody knows that all religious leaders are the same. And all religions are pointing you in the same direction and, and pointing to the same place. Saying the same things. 
this graphic you're going to see on the screen, it kind of illustrates this idea that all religions revolve around this one teaching that we call the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have others to do unto you. And all the teachings of the world, all the religions are basically saying the same things. And we so badly want to lump all religions together and say they're all saying the same things about the same God. There go our lights again. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and same things about the same God. And it's, uh, you know, uh, it, it's, it's peace. Because we so badly want religions to be at peace with each other. I, I get it, you know. I know the Christian claim of exclusivity of Jesus is controversial. I know that Christians have taken that claim out of context and said that if you don't accept Jesus personally, then you're going to hell. That's not the kind of stuff we should be saying. None of us know that. That's taking a whole different leap, right? When we talk about who Jesus was, we're talking about his identity, not what it means for the eternal soul of every living human being. We don't know the answer to that question. We're just talking about who Jesus was. And we got to get clear about this, that, that Jesus leaves us no middle ground here. And I think this is the biggest problem that many skeptics have with Christianity. So let's look at Jesus' most uh, obvious and clearest claim to divinity all right, and exclusivity. From John chapter 14, this is verses 5 through 7, Jesus says, uh, Thomas says to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. How many of you know somebody who no longer gives Christianity a serious thought or no longer comes to church because of these lines? No one comes to the Father except through him. Many people have found that offensive. Many Christians have used this line in an offensive way. Sometimes I want to say, you know, somebody needs to tell Jesus he's not allowed to talk like this anymore. You know, like, Jesus, this is offensive. And when you say things like this, this is how wars start, Jesus. And this is the reason people don't come to church. You know, like, we're smarter than Jesus about these kinds of things. You know, we're more tolerant or we're more enlightened about such things. Hey, I've been there, man. I've been in that mindset where you're, you're like embarrassed about a, a passage like this. And you're like, I'm a Christian, but I'm not one of those Christians. You know, I think we're all going in the same place or whatever. And I don't really believe in the exclusivity of it. I used to be there. Jesus isn't the only way. Jesus is just my only way. You know, that kind of stuff that we try to say to step around the issue. And here's the problem with that thinking, and there's, I, look, I'm trying not to be a jerk about this, but here's the problem with that thinking, and it, uh, it's articulated so well for, by N.T. Wright, a great uh, author and thinker. He says, the, pro the trouble with this thinking is that it doesn't work. If you dethrone Jesus, you enthrone something or someone else instead. The belief that all religions are really the same sounds nice and democratic, though the study of religions quickly shows that it isn't true. What you were really saying, if you claim that they're all the same, is that none of them are more than distant echoes, distorted images of reality. You're saying that reality, God, the divine, is remote and unknowable, and that neither Jesus nor Buddha nor Moses nor Krishna gives us direct access to it. They all provide a way towards the foothills of the mountain, not the way to the summit. So the only way you can be respectful of world religions is by acknowledging that they're all different. 
The only equality that you find by lumping all religions into the same box and saying they all say the same things is that you equally offend all the world's religions because they all make different claims. And it's only logical to assume that some will be truer than others and that some may be better or more legitimate than others. We have to get beyond political correctness to really get to the heart of the matter. And look, the Christian claim is a unique one. The Christian claim is a different one. There's nothing in the Bible that indicates that Jesus came to be one more path to the same place or just one more prophet pointing people toward God. Jesus came to show us God not just to show us the way toward God. This is the uniqueness of the Christian claim. It's not that if you don't know Jesus, you're not going to heaven. It's that Jesus comes to show us God, not just to point us the way to God, not just to show us how you have to behave in order to know God. Jesus came to chase you down so that you will know the love of God. In the form of a human, Jesus came. God came chasing after us. And that's the audacious claim of Christianity. Now, here we go. If Jesus is wrong, if that's where you land on this, I've got some good news for you. You get your Sunday mornings back. You can sleep in next week. That sounds pretty good. Uh, you can get your PJ, keep your PJs on, and you know, read the paper, if anyone gets a paper anymore, and just sit back. Uh, you get your tithes and offerings back. Uh, like not, not the ones you gave, but the ones you would have given. There's no refunds at the store, Houston. Uh, you have to read the small print. If he was wrong, that's the good news. But if he was right, I've got some even better news. If he was right, then you are loved by a God who no matter what you've done with your life so far will stop at nothing and will let nothing in heaven or on earth, stand in the way of his love for you. And will let nothing get in the way of him making sure that you know you are loved by him. You will know that you are invited into a relationship with him. If he was right, that's the even better news. And we get to make that choice. Now, if you choose to believe that Jesus was a liar or Jesus was a talented man at the center of this great hoax, then that's okay, but I need you to come to terms with all the stuff we've talked about today, but also even more so with the personal experiences millions or billions of people have had with Jesus. You're calling all of those illegitimate too. You're saying all of that is incredible, is an illusion. There's a guy that goes to church here, and uh, he's also a missionary with uh, Muslims in Muslim countries. He goes every summer teach Muslim people about the nature and identity of Jesus and invite them into a relationship with Jesus. And he's seen hundreds of people become Christians, hundreds of Muslim people become Christians. And he says, that's shocking enough, but what's even more shocking is that about a third of those people who became Christians from the Muslim faith all experienced the same dream just before becoming Christians. They all had the same dream about Jesus calling them home. And then I started doing more research about this phenomenon. It turns out this is a global phenomenon. This isn't just something that happens in this man's ministry. It happens all over the world. And there have been thousands of Muslim people who have decided to follow Jesus with their lives who all say they've had the same dream about Jesus calling them home. Now, are you, are you sure you want to say that's just coincidence? 
that thousands of unrelated Muslim people living in different countries had the same dream about the same Jesus calling them home over several generations, by the way. Are you sure you want to say that every person whose hand I've held on their deathbed and they've squeezed it and called the name of Jesus or at times they've said, do you see him? And I said, who? And they said, Jesus, he's here. And I said, oh my God, look at the time. I gotta go because I'm freaked out right now. You sure you want to say those experiences are illegitimate? Are you sure you want to say that every time a two-year-old speaks with such depth and wisdom about Jesus as if they know him, as if they've always known him, as if they came having known him, are you sure you want to say all of those experiences are illegitimate? I've heard CEOs of Fortune 500 companies tell the same stories about Jesus as prostitutes on the streets of the city tell. The same stories about the same Jesus having personal experiences with him. And I'm guessing that there are several people here who've had similar experiences. And you've probably explained them away. I did that. For years, I explained away my personal experiences with Jesus. Because cynicism is easy. And cynicism saves face. And cynicism can be good for your career and your social life. But I don't know about y'all, but I got tired of running. I got tired of running from what seemed so obviously true. And it's more likely than not that Jesus is who he said he was. It's much more likely than not that it's true, all of it. The light and the darkness, good and the evil, Jesus and the enemy, that Jesus is Lord and Savior, King of kings. And at one point in my life, I just realized that I was so sick of running from this truth and being cynical all the time that I had to stop crowning myself king of my own life and finally enthrone him as my king. And when I did, yeah, I had to walk back some of the things that I had said before. Yeah, I lost some friends. Yeah, I lost some speaking engagements. Yeah. It was humbling, but it changed everything. Because when Jesus becomes your king, he changes everything. And he's made me a better man, made me a better husband, a better father, a better friend. Because he's the king of my life now and not me any longer. And I don't want you to do this for any emotional reason or any coercive reason. Anything that you've heard today, I hope it's been meaningful. But what I, what I really hope is that you'll look at what's in front of you. You'll think back on your life. And you'll be compelled to make the same decision so many others in this room have made to have a personal encounter with Jesus right now. It's as simple as saying yes. I believe. I'm tired of running from belief. I'm tired of being that cynical guy, that cynical girl, and I surrender. And Jesus, I make you the king of my life. I can promise you your life will never be the same. You make that decision. I'm praying someone in this room makes that decision right now. Would you pray with me?